Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Lisa Wu from Norwest Venture Partners. This episode is so good. I had a smile the entire time I was listening to it. I've got some really fun times ahead. I'm going to Mexico this week with my entire family. And then next week, the Masters for a couple days with my dad. I'm obviously more excited for the Masters. That's a lifetime dream of mine. But both are going to be so great. I think one of the hardest parts about being an entrepreneur is that it just never feels like you can stop. I start working basically the second I wake up at 6.30 or 7, work all day, and then I feel guilty for the few moments that I'm not working, even though I feel like I'm giving everything I possibly can. I used to talk about meditating and working out, things that I want to do every day, but usually never do. I just don't make time for it. That sucks. Part of the appeal of doing a startup is that you're your own boss, but if I don't even allow myself 20 minutes to meditate or an hour to work out, What's the point? I think the issue is, is how our society says you need to think about work. It says that if you take an hour for yourself, then you should feel guilty. You should be working instead of playing nine holes on Friday afternoon. The flaw with this way of thinking is that it doesn't account for all the time that I spend off hours. Like every weekend, after we put our baby to sleep, while I'm in Mexico this week. But I just go right along and let society dictate how I should be thinking about it. The same thing every day. I wake up, think that I'll carve out some time for a quick meditation or a run. I don't do it, start working, get distracted by emails, calls, whatever, and then the day is over. For me, the time between 7 in the morning and noon is so productive that I don't like doing anything besides work. In an ideal world, I would spend that time between 7 and 12 just being super productive, and then come 12 or 1, go for a run or a quick bike ride, come back, eat some lunch, and then just be refocused for the rest of the day. But I don't do that. When you're starting a business, it's just never enough. And society says the same thing. When we meet with investors, they say, cool, let's talk when you get more users or show more traction or more network effects. So we internalize that. We grind and grind, and we just don't make time for ourselves. Well, I'm going to try to find some balance now. Not saying it's going to be easy, though. But I'm going to use this family trip to Mexico to get the meditation and exercise going and then come back to LA and just keep that momentum going. And we'll see. Uh, And also keep the momentum that we're having with Pay Club going. I didn't even mention, but the app has been humming along for the past couple of weeks. It's been really good. Okay, I'm off to Mexico. I'll have a margarita for you. And let's get into the interview. 
Hey, Lisa, thanks for speaking with me. Thanks for having me to your pretty offices here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, I'm looking forward to it. You're a Silicon Valley investor. You've kind of always been in Silicon Valley, right? Uh, I was actually in New York for, I lived in New York for 10 years and moved back out here two years ago. Um, so I've been at Norwest for six years, four of those years in New York, last two years here in Silicon Valley. Okay, but uh, let's start early undergrad days. Sure. Berkeley. Berkeley. Um, so I graduated from Cal. I was a double major in business and psychology. Um, and when I graduated, I started off in banking. Mm-hmm. Um, did that for a year, very quickly realized that it was an exercise in my brain the way that I enjoyed it being exercised um, and decided to quit. So I actually quit after a year, um, despite graduating, you know, like top of my class and all that stuff. Um, just I've always had a sense of urgency with my life to figure out what I want to do and also recognizing that we're here for a short, finite amount of time that it's not worth it to not be passionate about what you do. And so I quit and I went to go start something. Um, I didn't know what, um, but ended up starting a, a food business initially, uh, the high margin, healthy food business, bringing um, high quality foods to the high schools and hospitals in the Bay Area. Oh, so cool. You know, like a lot of people talk about starting a startup while they still have a job and de-risking it to the point where... You can have one foot in the job and one foot in the startup. But like with banking, it's kind of tough to tough to do that. You're working so much. Yeah. So you said, I'm just going to draw the line. I don't like this. I know this is not right for me, but I'm going to go like roll the dice and, and I'm just going to bet on myself. Yeah. I mean, I just figured that, um, you know, the most valuable asset we have in our life is our time. Right. And I knew that just from my past performance that I know how to perform um, and worse comes to worse, I'll just go back into banking. And so I also think that's doing something, especially startups takes um, it's hard to do it one foot in, one foot out, especially with banking, where it takes so much of your time. Um, and so for me, it was more let's just go and see what happens. And I think it was getting comfortable that if it failed, I was going to be OK. Um, and so then I had nothing to fear. Well, how do you how do you get comfortable with that? Just just that pure confidence in yourself, right? Yeah, just confidence in yourself that I can just go interview again and get back into a job. And I was also only 21, 22. Sure. Right. So sure. So, I mean, that's a good you had a good skill set to be able to fall back on. It's like people go to business school and they say, oh, I'll try to do a startup. And if it doesn't work, I can fall back on my Harvard MBA. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's what that's the one of the benefits of having credentials too is that for other people it's a shortcut of like being able to fall back on that um, and also employers so that you can lean on that if you need to. Sure. Okay. So, how'd you come to this uh, high margin healthy food startup? <laughs> it was a bit random, you know. I think somebody who graduated with a business major, um, you don't have nece- you you didn't really train in technology, and so it was the easiest thing to get started off the ground that was profitable from day one. And so um, it's funny because I have friends now who said that I was just you know eight years too late because you've had a lot of food businesses come now. Um, but it was something that I was just able to quickly just start selling um, into schools and 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 make money and also be cash flow positive. Um, but you know, very quickly you learn that whether you create a business that goes public one day or whether you create one that's like a lifestyle profitable business, um, it takes the same amount of time, which is 24 seven of your time. So, um, after doing that for a year, um, I realized that I wanted to do things that impacted more people and had more scale. And so that's what brought me into venture. Um, I essentially just wanted to learn how to leverage technology to, to have more influence. Um, so, you know, have the kind of the same amount of effort coming in, but a higher amount of impact afterwards. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I buy that uh, yeah. line of reasoning. So you've got a year of, of uh, investment banking and now a year of startups. Mm-hmm. And how do you get into venture? Yeah. Venture is, um, 
it's um, so for me at that point, you know, they always it, it didn't make sense at the time. You know, I think in 2020 hindsight, the story sounds sounds easy. It's like, oh, you're in finance, a year in venture, a year at a startup and combine those two. Of course, you'll go into venture sure. next. Um, but I really just didn't know. I just knew that what I needed more education. And so I actually wasn't familiar with the venture capital uh, industry when I was looking for a job in venture, it was, I think, I think it was just a friend of mine at banking sent it to me and said, I should check this out. And so, um, so it was a, my first job was adventure was with a firm called Bessemer Venture Partners in New York. And, um, you know, I would say breaking into venture in general is a revolving door. And so when there's an opportunity, it's kind of like, you kind of want to seize it and, and lean into it. And, um, fortunately at that time, Bessemer was one of the few firms that was hiring analysts. And so that's how I broke in. So I have a partner now at Norwest but I've basically worked up the industry starting as an analyst. Right, analyst to partner. Analyst to partner. Well, that's great yeah. to hear. And so, okay, now you're in New York working in venture, and is this more fulfilling than your other jobs? Less fulfilling? Like, how, how are you finding it? Yeah, much more fulfilling. Um, I... I personally love venture. I think for me, it's the best job in the world. You know, what other industries can you work on like the cutting edge of business technology and innovation? Um, and more importantly, work with passionate founders and people who are really determined to change the status quo um, and have a vision of what the future should be. And I think that that kind of energy is what draws me to this industry and those types of people. Um, and so I think that with, you know, with investment banking and hedge funds and, and that, those kind of asset classes is a lot of value shifting. So yep. you're kind of just moving value from one place to another. I think the the, the wonderful thing about venture capital and just startup, um, the startup ecosystem is about value creation. And I think that that's really rewarding as human beings. It's it's nice to kind of always um, to focus on people who are investing in growth and contribution. So I love it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. And you're really lucky. I mean, two years basically into your working career, you're finding, you find a job that you love in an industry that you you're, you really like. Yeah. It's, um, it was lucky. You know, I, I think it's, um, I do believe in your twenties, you should just try a bunch of things, um, and fail fast, fail often so that you can figure out what you like. And it's, it's, uh, it's rare to find the first job and be like, this is what I want. But I, and also to be honest, I started off in venture at Bessemer and I actually didn't know if I wanted to stay there because sometimes you just don't have perspective. Right. And so I went back to business school, um, worked a bit at Amazon. And then after that came back into venture and it's not till the past few years, that I really feel like I've gotten my stride in this industry and, and, um, and really have fallen in love with it. Interesting. So. Okay, so yeah, so there's like a stint in business school and then I'm working for a, a huge company. What motivated you? Was business school something you always wanted to do? Was it just you didn't want to work at like you said, at Bessemer anymore? What was that decision? No, I loved, so I loved my time at Bessemer. I think at school, it was just something that was, um, I would say it was more important to my parents. You know, they're kind of, they're immig it's like an immigrant mentality. Um, and I actually didn't know if I wanted to go to business school. I applied the third round, which I would not recommend anyone to do. Um, and um, fortunately, just, you know, I ended up getting a, a scholarship to Wharton. And so I ended up going there. Well, you're you bet on yourself again, and it, looked, yeah. it paid off. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you go to Philadelphia, and you go to school for two years, and what's your, do you intern for Amazon between years one and two? Intern for Amazon. You intern for Amazon, they give you a job offer, you come back to business school, it's like, life is good, I don't even need to think about what I'm going to do for the next mm -hmm. for the next year. So mm -hmm. you traveled around and had cool experiences, mm -hmm. uh, and then you moved to Seattle. 
Um, so I was in Seattle for the summer only. Oh, so this this was Amazon in New York. This was so it was Amazon internship in Seattle mm-hmm. for a couple months. Um, I did get a full time to go back there, but then for my second year, went back to Wharton, and then after school, I graduated. I, went, I joined Norwest. Oh, okay. So right after school, so mm-hmm. it's just the internship at Amazon. Just the internship at Amazon. Um, yeah, I mean that. Amazon was the number one employer for my business school class. Yeah. I think they had, I think they they had like six hundred MBA interns. Oh wow! I interned at Warner Brothers. Yep. And they had three MBA interns. Wow! I think it tells you like what's going on. Yeah. 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 And I mean, Amazon has been on a tear these past few years, so um, so they have a lot of means to hire folks. Okay, so you were in like the group at Amazon where all the ex investment bankers and stuff go into mm-hmm. the corp dev. So oh, it's yeah. essentially the team that's uh, responsible for all the M and a as well as strategic investments. Mm-hmm. And was that, did you like it? So I, I quite liked my team and I think that, you know, when I was at Bessemer, we invested in a company called Quidzy that was acquired by Amazon. And so I thought it was quite interesting just to see what the other side of the table was like and what these acquirers did. Um, but I think ultimately in the end, it was, uh, it was, it was still a large company and I have an entrepreneurial spirit. I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit. And while you kind of do similar things in that role and in venture and that you proactively reach out to companies, they come meet you and you try to decide whether to invest. I miss the hustle a bit. I mean, I, the nice thing about working and sitting in the Amazon sea is a pretty comfortable job and every entrepreneur wants to come to you. So you can just send an email and people will fly just to meet you. And, um, and that's great. But there was something about just the hustle of venture that I quite liked. Um, and it felt more, um, I guess, entrepreneurial. I wasn't ready for the big company thing yet. Right. So okay. So back to school, and I mean, it's nice to have like be able to. This was like the first time in your life you had something you could like fall back on. You're not just like out there exposed. You had a job offer you could fall back on, but you said I'll try to go get into uh, venture capital again. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, at this time, so Norwest was looking for someone to kind of be responsible for opening their New York office. So the the Norwest is based in California, headquartered in Palo Alto, another office in San Francisco. And um, at that time, consumer was taking off, just consumer investing, and they wanted someone to be in New York. And so I was brought on to open the New York office. Um, and it was just me. So I was the sole person on the ground to find opportunities there. Um, and And that's why I ended up taking it. Would you have gotten that job if you didn't have venture capital experience before business school? I think it would have been much harder for the role that they were trying to fill just yeah. because they were looking for somebody who had a network already in New York. And and obviously, if you're going to be the only person there, um, it's good to have somebody who's done it before so that they know what they're doing when they hit the ground. Right. So That makes sense. I mean, there's like this divide between people that come to business school from like the army and, and they're just like trying to get their first real job versus right. someone who's like had real experiences. You go to business school and you just get like a little bit of a higher job in the same type of industry. Totally. Yeah. And venture in general, it's an apprenticeship business. So it, it's, uh, it takes time to develop the pattern recognition of what creates an interesting company. And so being able to have done that initially at Bessemer for a bit and then refine that, continue to refine that, um, was gave them the confidence that I can kind of be there by myself. Sure. I mean, yeah, pattern recognition. And I guess it takes a long, long time to see whether you're actually good at it, right? Very long time. And a lot of luck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, well, this is... I'm, I'm liking this story now. Uh, this is... This is, this is Just now? <laughs> the whole thing is, is pretty... Is, I mean, as you said, looking back on it, it makes... I guess like there's there's like a straight line, right? But while you're while you're in it, did it didn't, it didn't feel like that, right? Right. 
Um, I think that's most people's career, right? I don't think it's it's uh, it takes time to just evolve your own personalities and, and amass a skill set and have that continue to build on itself to figure out what you're really good at and what you're not good at. And that just takes time and it takes experience. Makes sense. Yeah. So now tell us what happens next in your story. You're opening this office in New York. I mean, you're still working at this firm. I assume things went pretty well, well for you. Yeah, it was, it was great. So, you know, I would say that, um, I was in New York and one of the things, one of the, another reason why I ended up being in New York is that something that I observed as being an analyst at Bessemer was that those that got promoted in venture were ones that either owned a roadmap, an investment roadmap, or they owned a territory. And so I thought it was a good opportunity to kind of own New York, cover New York and kind of be the expert of New York. And so when I was there, um, I, um, you know, I just built relationships with other VCs and entrepreneurs there, um, and ultimately led to an investment in a company called Jet, um, which was a CBG marketplace that was acquired by Walmart. Um, and so that was something that I had found while being in New York. I've actually known Mark for a while, um, given that we backed him at, at Bessemer and just kept a close relationship with him. Uh, Mark's the founder of Jet. Mark Laurie. Yeah, I've heard him on a podcast talking about, you know, like dynamic pricing and like adding things to your car. Yeah. And it, I mean, it was, it's a cool idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's just a phenomenal entrepreneur, right? So he had built businesses before, and he's just a, a true executive, somebody who's able to really hold a vision of what the future should look like, um, but yet still have a, a good intuitive grasp on the numbers, um, as well as be able to manage and lead people. Like, lots of people want to work for him, and yeah. that helps. So, I mean, that's, as you said at the beginning of this podcast, like, your life is kind of just, like, surrounded by people like that, mm-hmm. which is an enviable position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, one of the most meaningful parts of the job is building deep relationships with founders and where I get the most fulfillment, especially in an industry where it's very hard to predict success um, given just how much luck is involved as well. Um, it's usually just those relationships with the founders and being able to help them and support them and really back their dreams is what I find to be the most fulfilling. Right. So is there, I mean, yes, obviously, like when you're a blue chip venture capital fund. So you're dealing with blue chip founders and people that have done this over and over and over. But like, are there instances where, you know, someone like reaches out to you or cold, you meet them at a conference, you're like, oh, this is, this is like something interesting. They're like not connected to anyone in Silicon Valley. And like it, it works and you invest and like, it's like a Cinderella story. Yeah, you know, I would say, well, so one of my companies, I invested in a company called Ritual, which is a direct-to-consumer women's health brand. And I actually met that founder at a conference. Um, And so I think finding founders happen everywhere. And now the barriers to start companies is quite low. And so there's lots of founders. I think our role as venture investors is try to sort through the funnel to figure out who are the right founders to back. Um, And that can take time. And so, you know, for founders who who are listening here, I would say that I... It's it's very rare that a cold email leads to an investment. Yep. Um, and so just to the extent, because a large part of building a company is around being able to tap into your network and to find the right opportunities and to lean into those opportunities. And so for us, I, I would lean much more on just like a warm intro for someone that I trust, right, as opposed to a cold outreach. Yeah, I, mean, I guess it's, an, it's if you can triangulate a way to get a warm introduction, it's like an indicator that you'll be able to do other things, right? Yeah. 
Agreed. And, um, but I would say, I, you know, I cold outreach to founders all the time as well, right? Just because I can't solely just respond, um, lean into my VCs who are sending me deals or, or the, the network that I know. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I'm sitting around just trying to develop a hypothesis of how the world's going to change um, and then proactively reach out to founders. And, um, and I, what I find is that founders actually respond quite well to multiple emails to them because they've had to do it themselves, right? Because a large part of being a founder and entrepreneur is persistence and convincing people to get to a yes. And so whenever I'm tra- trying to train, um, you know, like the, the younger folks at our organization about outreaching, I'll tell them like, if they don't respond after one email, keep going after them because I think in the end people really appreciate that persistence. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a characteristic of successful humans, right? You have to be persistent. And yeah, I found with, you know, with my outreach for the company or for the podcast, whatever, there's like a sweet spot between that second and third email. I don't send more than, more than, than three, but like it's that first one is like, okay, that's interesting. It strikes their interest. And the second one is like a quick, hey, just wanted to circle back. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's like, oh yeah, okay, I wanted to do that. So mm-hmm. it's like, it's, I mean, people are busy. They forget like, I do zero inbox, but not everyone does that. So it, I aspirationally try to get to zero inbox. Yeah, so. zero inbox. That's I mean, impressive I'll, that you can do I'll that. I'll talk about zero inbox for the next 35 minutes here. It's, <laughs> uh, like, I get everyone I know to try to, to do zero inbox. Yeah. And my brother's the same way. He's, uh, he's an actor, writer, director, mm-hmm. Hollywood guy. And so I've got him on zero inbox. But he's like, oh, I emailed the director. He emailed me back. So, you know, F him. I'm like, Jake, like, the guy's busy. you got to email him five times maybe before, before he's going to respond to you. So that persistence is... Yeah, is, is important. I think that um, especially the longer in the industry, the more people you end up knowing. So the more emails you actually end up coming to your inbox too, right? And so it, it is really about just, um, I try to be good at responding as well. I try to do it within at least 24 hours, um, ideally 12, um, but it's hard, right? Yeah. And, um, and But oftentimes it's just because there's a lot in there and it's just about being top of mind, right? And so this is why email again, email again, and that persistence and, and just recognizing that people are busy and it's just, um, that's just usually oftentimes it, um, is, is just good to remember. Sure. Okay. So Lisa, you said you became a territory expert for New York. So like you're out there, you're understanding all of the ecosystem in New York, um, <laughs> But you don't live in New York anymore. Yeah. So, but did like the thesis? It, it it sounds like it worked, right? You you did well. You understood the market, and you were able to translate that into partner. But but now you don't live there. Yeah. So I guess the question you're trying to get at is why come here and what are the ecosystems like for entrepreneurs yeah. in New York and San Francisco? So I thought, I thought quite a bit about this. And so what I'd say is, um, New York is a really great ecosystem. Um, and the thing is it's still quite nascent relative to Silicon Valley. Um, just because it's, I would say New York is growing at a faster rate because it is smaller and growing faster. Um, but Silicon Valley has been here for a while. And so usually what happens when these ecosystems get built is that you have companies that have, um, um, that um, get a, a meaningful outcome, whether they go public or get acquired for a large amount. And then the next generation of entrepreneurs come from those companies, yeah. right, and start the next generation of companies. And so what you need to happen is for entrepreneurs to sell their companies and then stay in the area and build the next generation of companies. And that's how the ecosystem gets built. And so that's happening right now in New York, right? You've seen it with the, the double clicks of all of Kevin Ryan's companies out there, um, the guilt groups and, and whatnot. Um, but it's still just early days 
relative to Silicon Valley. And, um, you know, another thing is that I work at Norwest, which is um, our current fund is a $1.5 billion fund. And so to to really make a dent on a $1.5 billion fund, you really have to generate large outcomes. And New York, I think, is a really good ecosystem for entrepreneurs um, that um, there's a lot of there's not as many big outcomes, unicorn outcomes out there as there is in California. And one of the one of the things I've thought about is I think it also has to do with psychology um, as well, because, you know, or I guess it's more about uh, one way to view it is that, um, you know, I like to say every city has its vice. So New York is money, LA's fame, DC's power, Boston's education, and San Francisco's glory. And if you take this kind of view, that means that um, because New York is money and it's quite expensive to live there, but it's also expensive to live in California, but you can kind of get more bang for your buck in California. Um, people are willing to sell early. So a founder might start a business and they might sell at a hundred million just because they want to get that extra bedroom or that extra bathroom, right? Just to make their standard of living a little easier. And then they can go bigger with their next company. So, um, and that was something that Mark Laurie did of Jet is that he sold his first business for a $550 million exit, stayed in New York. And then his next exit was 3.3 billion, right? And so, I think you're finding lots of entrepreneurs sell to like a you know sub five hundred million dollar exit, which is an amazing outcome for the founders and perhaps for seed or Series A investors. But if you're a one point five billion dollar fund, it's it's not that great of an outcome, um, depending on what your ownership is. Um, and so I think in San Francisco, people want to go long. They want to have glory, right? And because they're willing to go long, they're not going to sell as early. And so that's it's kind of like one of the reasons too is that I do think that people in California they want to their ideal they want to change the world. Um, and I guess this goes to the second point, which is that um, in California, they want to change the world. And that that naturally means that they're creating businesses that kind of affect everyone. Versus in New York, there's so many different industries there that are have lots of problems to solve. And so you're, you're naturally building solutions in cap markets because those are kind of in industries, whether it's legal or it's fashion or, or whatnot, versus San Francisco, which is like, I want to change the world, right? I, that was that was fun to hear. That was interesting. I've, yeah, I've, I, it makes sense—the fame and the money and the power and the glory. Uh, I like I like hearing that. So, were those eight eight years in New York? Um, did that like putting in that time there and you know building out your network in New York? Mm-hmm. Was it? I mean, was it worthwhile? Yeah. Now, now that you don't live there, definitely. Um, and does it pay dividends today? Definitely. Um, and a, a large part is because. I think entrepreneurship is is getting increasingly popular across the U.S. And so as an investor, being out here is that I do make investments here, but I'm going to be making investments in Los Angeles and San Francisco likely as well. And so being able to have that network, have cultivated that network, um, know the founder ecosystem there and know some of the VCs there, it's, it's useful for me. And so I try to get back to New York once every six weeks. Once every six weeks. Yeah. And... Okay, so I guess that's that's most of the story. The, the the last piece of this conversation usually shifts towards somewhere like advice, mm-hmm. and we're talking with someone who's graduating school, or maybe they're working in banking or something. But you know, they don't, they don't, they haven't had all of the experiences that you've had to figure out what they like and what they don't like. Um, what do you tell someone that's just like not quite sure of their path yet? They want to work hard, but they just haven't had the opportunity across their plate yet. Um, 
thinking, especially when looking for your first job? Maybe your first job, maybe just early in your career. So like you're, you either you have the banking job or you're, you're still in school. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say it's kind of what I said earlier, which is fail fast, fail often. Fail Allow fast. yourself to have lots of jobs and expect to have lots of jobs in your 20s so that by the time you're in your 30s, you can figure out where to actually focus. Um, and I think that, that that's also something good to remember. Find someone that you look up to that you kind of want to be when you're older. I think one of the things that made it easy for me to leave banking was that when I looked at all the senior people, I didn't want to be any of them, mm. right? They had the money, but they, they, I just didn't feel inspired by them. I didn't feel like I shared a similar value system and, and that's fine, but there's some, some other people might be able to identify with that. Right. Um, but as soon as I stumbled into venture at both Bessemer and at this firm, I found people that I want to emulate and I want to be, and I, I really respect their lifestyles. Right. And so look for someone like that, that, um, um, that you can work with, ideally work for, that can be a champion and mentor to you as you grow up in your career. Um, another thing I would say is when you do find the job that you want, um, I would, uh, somebody gave me this advice a while ago, which is um, in addition to finding a mentor that can be your champion and that you respect and that you can learn from, you, you really want to nail it out of the park your first year. And this is not if you're doing a startup, right? Because you're your own boss, but if you're working in a, in a corporate, uh, just a corporation, because when you can nail it out of the park the first year, you've kind of built your credibility then, and that will pay dividends over the next mm -hmm. few years. But if you don't nail it after the first year, you're constantly working to build your reputation and gain the credibility that takes a while. So I would say also just work hard and do a good job. Um, and in order to do that, you have to find something that you're passionate about. Yeah. That, that first impression piece. But I also, I, I, I like how you said it's not just finding a mentor, but finding a role model mm -hmm. of like who you can look up to. And it's, it's more than just someone that's rich. It's like yeah. someone that has shared values and characteristics that, that you look for. Yeah. I really believe, and this might be some of my psych background is just, um, the, the, opportunity we as humans have to self-actualize in our lives and to, you know, really just find things that utilize our strengths, um, to be able to contribute to society. And, um, and I do think that that feeling is possible. You just have to keep seeking. And when you seek, you'll be able to find answers. So, yeah, well said, Lisa, this was awesome speaking with you. Oh, likewise. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thanks for listening today. Let me know what you think. Leave me a review on iTunes and tell your friends about this podcast. Thanks.